Apocalypse Here. It's Monday morning and you're getting ready for school, just like any other Monday morning. But as you start driving, you notice that the highways are clogged with hordes of roaming zombies. So you make the wise decision to flee into the lovely hills with your best friend, who happened to be commuting with you on this fateful, fateful morning. Amazingly, the two of you stumble upon a secret apocalypse bunker. Although its owner is nowhere to be seen, perhaps already having joined the legions of the undead. You and your friend lock yourselves inside, ready to wait out the end of days, when you hear a knock on the door. A small group is outside, begging for you to let them in. But you only have enough rations for one more person until the crisis has abated, which you both agree that about a year should be a safe bet. There's no time to interview each candidate, so you must decide quickly with your friend whom to pick to survive with you in your new world. Choose one candidate who you think will contribute the most to your survival and or the survival of the human race, and write a one-page description about how you would try to convince your friend that your choice is the right one. Think about you and your friend's own strengths, weaknesses, etc., as well as what you might know and not know about the new world you'll emerge into in one year. Remember what we speak about when we say ethos, logos, and pathos. The candidates are a public defense lawyer, a New York City head librarian, a Grammy award-winning singer, a brain surgeon, a former U.S. Marine, a veterinarian, a seven-year-old boy and girl, which you can pick both of since they are younger, smaller, and can split rations, a former Major League MVP, that's Most Valuable Player, a fourth-generation beet farmer, and your last option is an Alaskan crab fisherman. Choose wisely. <laughs> so I should pause for a moment and explain a little bit about this exercise. Uh, first of all, thank you for joining us here on Professor Lab's podcast, where, of course, we discuss all sorts of uh, academic topics, if you're joining us for the first time. A lot of topics that come up in class, including this one, which is an assignment that I actually do assign in class for students as we start to talk about um, argument and argumentation and perspective in general. So, of course, um, it's probably not necessarily obvious, but I do teach writing. And so this seems like a relevant, valid exercise, writing exercise to sort of get those ideas going. Now, a few things, again, that I should probably clarify. Um, you may have heard in the assignment description, I mentioned, obviously, it's a very narrative visual assignment description, but I mentioned these ideas of ethos, logos, and pathos, which I think is a good place to start. So if you are a student listening, uh, and certainly another instructor, you've probably heard of these terms and may, in fact, already be quite well acquainted with them. But if you are not a student um, listening, you, you may have not heard of these terms or you may have different ideas of what these terms really mean. And that's actually perhaps quite useful because I feel like these are the types of terms that we hear in, in teaching and in, in academics that often are misused. And when I say misused, I mean misused in the sense that like people kind of rely upon them without really knowing what they mean. This is sort of 
a big problem that I found when I graded AP exams. Um, you would get a lot of students in their AP uh, language exams who use fancy words, but they're not really applying them to the situation that they're analyzing either accurately or appropriately and for different reasons, right? So it's one thing to be able to identify fancy words. It's another thing to, altogether to be able to actually use them, again, not just accurately, but effectively. And so these terms of ethos, logos, and pathos, um, I believe are Greek, but they're really just categories of understanding of uh, elements of argumentation and persuasion. So I think I'll link a, a link in the description that more fully explains these ideas because they are really interesting. Um, but again, they're just these ideas of uh, ethos, which relates to an author's uh, ethics or credibility. Like, is this person a believable, reliable character for us as an audience or as a group of readers to want to um, and have reason to believe what they have to say? Uh, whereas logos is the logical arguments that we actually see within an argument. Um, and obviously there can be a lot of issues, right? If you think about illogical arguments or what we might call logical fallacies, all of which are very important to talk about in, in writing and bro again, broader argumentation in general, whether you're a student, uh, in, in uh, high school or, or college or a student of life in general, right? Uh, could be super useful, right, for many, many people to study. And uh, pathos, which again is just essentially, in, for our purposes, just a fancy way of saying emotional appeal, appeal to a reader's emotion. So that's where you see examples, language, word choice that is really meant to evoke a an emotional response in your reader or your audience. So maybe you, you see this a lot in, in uh, political speeches, right? A lot of uh, you know claims and statements and, and examples and language and word choice and in inflections of tones that again more so than the content the quality of the content itself necessarily and the logical arguments that should be supporting those emotions it's it's relying upon the emotions themselves. Now, having said that, all of these ideas are just categories of ideas and they overlap, right? So that's sort of what I meant earlier when I was saying that a lot of students misuse these terms in the sense that they say, well, the author's ethos is this. The author uses logos here. The author uses pathos here. And it's like, well, yeah, that might be true, but this is all intertwined, right? And I think that's really important to note. And that's kind of the idea behind this exercise that we do pretty early on in the semester. I think it's useful to do early on for a few reasons. I mean, first of which, and I tell my students this, how many writing classes have you taken or English classes have you taken where it's just like, oh, it's grammar exercise after grammar exercise. It's like boring assignment after boring assignment. No idea how this connects to real life, the real world. Um, and that can be difficult, I think, especially for, for younger people who are less experienced within the real world um, to be given these abstract concepts and just being told that this type of analysis and thinking is is important and is vital to their, you know, whether profession, uh, uh, personal development or academic development and ultimately professional development too. Um, 
So I think it's it's good to have, and I'll actually in coming up some episodes coming up, I want to do some some episodes where I, I go over some exercises that do talk about real world writing because I'm blown away by how little I see of this both in the classroom, um, from other instructors I've spoken to, but also just in general people talking about how you can apply these real um, guidelines of analysis and perspective and argumentation to real practical situations. So to get them there, I kind of like to do fun stuff like this too, <laughs> where we dive into something like an apocalypse bunker, right? Um, which again is in its own way creative, uh, creatively relatable, right? Uh, students oftentimes are big fans of zombies. Uh, I know I am to some degree at least. Um, and it's, it's funny, that's, that's sort of how I came up with this. Students sometimes ask me, they say, where did you get this from? What is this based on? It's based on my insanity is what it's based on. So I, I just totally, you know, crafted it on my own, obviously with lots of zombie influences at play. But I, th I think that's, you know, one of the really cool things that I like about teaching colleges. Uh, and you could obviously do this at in all sorts of educational contexts. But uh, I, I really do appreciate this flexibility to be able to, you know, craft and, and, implement these, you know, just different exercises like this that do tie to a very, you know, tangible, beneficial, um, you know, teaching, uh, what, what would I call that sort of teaching goal, right? Uh, or learning goal for the students. And so like I was saying earlier, you know, really the idea here is to work on not just identifying the areas of credibility, logical argument, emotional appeal, but how these, again, are not mutually exclusive, right? They, they all overlap. So I tell students to think about these ideas as these categories of persuasion um, as more like a Venn diagram type thing than like just, you know, a pyramid or something like that, which of course is another way perhaps to think about ideas like these. Um, <clears throat> and so you see this in the answers that we get when we discuss this exercise. And I think it's really telling and it's really useful. Again, as sort of one of these exercises that starts as like the first key to unlock the door that maybe hopefully leads to lots of other doors, right? In terms of uh, perspective and thinking and argument. Um, and so what I mean by that is that as we start to talk, I say, all right, well, where do you start in terms of trying to convince your friend, right? And this comes back to what I say in the in the assignment description, which I'll also link below for you, because it is fun to think about and talk about with your friends too. And a lot of them, they say, well, you know, they start with trying to talk about the, the merits of these candidates, right? And I say, boy, what does that sound an awful lot like? Oh, you're assessing their credibility, right? So it goes both ways, which I think is really interesting when we talk about credibility. And this is why I really like this assignment, because you as somebody thinking more broadly about an argument have to consider, well, first of all, what is um, what is what are these people's credibility based on what their job description is? Right. Um, why might that be useful? Right. Now you're getting into, well, let's make some logical arguments. Um, of that based on their credibility. But you're also considering, well, what about you and your friend? Like, what is your credibility, right? Well, you know, what what is your sort of uh, ethos in that sense, right? To be able to dictate 
what is the best choice for us. And so you might have to rely upon your past experiences. You might have to rely upon your previous expertise, right? Um, and so this is how we start discussing these some of these answers. And we see it in their answers, which is really kind of cool. Um, and so what I mean by that is you start to get all sorts of different answers that sort of make sense based on the individual. So for example, one student might say, well, I think we should choose the brain surgeon because of various reasons, right? Maybe they could solve the zombie apocalypse uh, because they know a lot about brains and zombies have brain issues, right? Or they know basic medical care, right? So that will be useful too. So maybe it's not just one reason, but it's several reasons that you add up and explain that to your friend why that's important, right? Now, if you and or your friend are both studying pre-med and you already have basic uh, you know, maybe fundamental medical understanding, you might choose a totally different option then. You might say, well, maybe we should go with, clearly the Marine is the best choice. And it's like, well, why is the Marine the best choice now? Well, because based on your situation, that complements your skill sets that you already have compared to the brain surgeon, which, which might be redundant, especially if part of your argument is arguing that it's, not worth the gamble that this person will actually be useful at helping solve the zombie apocalypse because that's too broad of an assumption based on the evidence that we already have, which isn't much. We don't have much evidence about what's going on in this apocalypse. So see how you can very quickly make a totally different decision based upon the fact that you have a different set of skills as opposed to maybe uh, a, a classmate of yours, right? Um, and this is why we get so many interesting answers in a class of, you know, uh, 20, 25 students, however many students there are. Uh, and that's really quite cool. And then furthermore, we start to notice as we go through that there are balances of these appeals, too. So many students, they kind of default to the logical reasoning. And I explained that makes sense, right? That's a good sign if you're trying to make an argument and the basis and the, you know, the real structure of the argument is, is grounded in logical reasoning. But again, that logic, those logical arguments are in part dictated by you assessing, well, what's our credibility? What do we bring to the table versus, you know, what do these candidates also offer? And then making logical arguments from there. So in that way, yeah, you can think of it sort of as the pyramid, but um, you know, as well, there's also the emotional aspect to it. And I say, well, how you present these arguments also matters, right? So the examples we give is that you would really start to consider language and word choice and examples to further persuade or convince your friend. But that's also dependent upon your assessment of how is your friend normally persuaded by emotional appeal? You know, are they a very unemotional person? Is that not going to have much of an effect on them? Or is a certain type of emotional appeal particularly effective at swaying them or convincing them, right? Do they, are they more sort of swayed by uh, when they feel guilty, when they feel scared, when they feel prideful? Um, combination of those, combination of some of those and other emotions. So this is about knowing your audience, right? This is, a, which is your friend. Um, which who you should know pretty well, hopefully, right? If you're willing to spend the rest of your days perhaps in an apocalypse bunker with them. But see, uh, very quickly, again, not just the candidate that you choose, but the examples and the language that you 
choose to craft to try to convince them is specifically tailored to that audience, to that individual. Now, this, of course, gets more complicated when you don't know your audience, right? And you have to make certain assumptions about your audience. And this is sort of what we build up to or, or continue into as we start to talk to, about our first assignment, which is actually a rhetorical analysis of um, student opinion articles in the school newspaper. So we look at the school student-run newspaper. There's an, an op-ed opinion section like you would see in most other newspapers. And students write opinion articles. And so that is a little more difficult to actually analyze because they're in those opinion articles, those students are trying to convince their fellow students of a point of view of, of some sort of argument, whether it's a social issue, an economic issue, socioeconomic issue, political issue. I mean, a lot of these overlap again, these issues, but the audience is much more broad. However, we can start to transition into talking about that now, right? Instead of as per the apocalypse bunker exercise where the audience is essentially just your one best friend in analyzing these articles, ah, the audience is now this group of students at this school of which there might be very different opinions among them based on a specific topic. So a, an exercise like this, I think, is a, is a good sort of, um, you know, again, just like first rung on, on the ladder towards building up towards these much more complicated situations where you have more than obviously one reader uh, and more than one opinion. But if you can sort of isolate that in in a, an example in an exercise like this, I think it's really useful um, in order to, you know, think about like why you would think about the decisions that you make in all of these details, you know, not just the broader choice, but then sort of narrowing that focus in terms of like, okay, we choose this candidate, but then like, what are the most important factors as to why we do that? And then how do we explain those factors in a convincing, compelling way? And this is good too, because we're able to get into counter arguments uh, as well, or counter perspectives. And it's like, well, you also want to think about perhaps who your best friend might think is a good choice, right? And this is something that comes up in the researched argument paper, which we do later on, um, where you're trying to write an argument based on research. And that's a whole other issue that we'll talk about in another episode, you know, talking about bias and absolutes and all that sort of stuff. But again, I think that's actually a really useful bridge in starting to think about that, because one of the things I say in researched argument papers is that, yeah, you need to acknowledge either direct counter arguments to the point that you're arguing or counter viewpoints or even just counter perspectives, different ways of looking at an issue. Um, and I think this is, uh, you know, once more a great exercise for that as well, because if you think about the fact that there's so many other choices here, again, your friend might say, well, what about that one? Or they might totally disagree. Again, this is based upon assessing what is the personality of your friend and are they going to have maybe another strong choice or, or, you know, a conflicting choice to yours. So if you address that in your argument, you can actually craft quite a compelling argument, right? Maybe a better way rather than just saying, well, we should pick this person because of these reasons and, you know, the hell with you if you disagree. Um, that's one way to do it. But is that going to be convincing to all audiences? I know it wouldn't be convincing to me uh, if my best friend did that. So I always say, what if you started with the candidates that we shouldn't choose? What if you say, you know, first thought, I think the 
Marine might be the best choice. I mean, think. let's think about this, right? You know, the Marine has this skill, this skill, that skill. Seems really useful. However, is this really what we're going to need to survive? What about, and then you go into those arguments for that. Now, by doing this, what you've effectively done is acknowledge that there are merits to some of these other choices and perhaps very strong merits. However, if you can sort of counter that with your actual argument of your your choice, right, and show that there's a, there's more effective reasons to choose that other option, you can still make a compelling, complete argument. Because sometimes it's not about just totally disproving another side. It's about showing that, yes, there are merits on both sides. However, this option is clearly at least slightly better than the alternative. And ideally, you want to present that as strongly as possible. You want to say, actually, it's it's quite a better decision um, than maybe the other option. But you, by doing that, it sort of enhances your own credibility, right? Because if you ignore that alternate viewpoint or that alternate perspective, again, an audience can essentially wonder, well, why are you ignoring that, right? Are you ignoring that other option or those other, you know, viewpoints because you don't, you aren't aware of them, you haven't thought of them, but I have, so maybe I'm right, right? Um, or is it because you know that those are better choices and for some biased, arbitrary reason, you just like this option? So that lack of acknowledging that viewpoint, at least, um, can actually in turn hurt your argument. And geez, like, is this ever useful <laughs> in today's era of social media arguments, which I really want to do an episode on, but I just don't know how to do it right. Um, I'm doing a lot of self-research myself in like talking to people on Twitter and Facebook and trying to get somewhere, especially as we are in an election season now. Uh, 2020 is, I can't believe it's only February that we're recording this episode. It's going to be a wild year, so there's probably inevitably going to be episodes on on political uh, rhetoric and argument, but I'm not necessarily looking forward to it. I feel like the fall semester is going to be pretty wild because I know um, back in 2016, it was was pretty intense, and I I think even more so this time around. So um, I actually, again, having said that, I think a lot of these ideals in an exercise like this are super useful for political discourse, but unfortunately, Twitter's 20, 280 character limit isn't quite conducive to giving you the space to offer counter arguments. Um, but, uh, you know, again, that's a whole other issue for another day. So maybe we'll try that again moving forward. But, um, I think if you're listening, you can get a lot out of this, right? In terms of, you know, what is your asking, what is your goal in making an argument? Is your goal to prove that you're right and piss off your opponent and, you know, meh, right? Like, I'm right, you're wrong, like, listen to me. Sure, that's one way to, to do arguments. But is it the most effective? Again, ask, would that work on you? And the answer is most likely no, right? Um, as as it would be for most people. And this is something we talk a, a lot about in some other, like I was saying, uh, more real-world exercises that we do, which I, I think we'll do coming up in, in the next few episodes because they're, they're actually really fun. And again, they're, they're quite useful, I think. So 
Um, it, 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 you do have to ask that, though, or I think you should ask that in every argument. Am I trying to just prove that I'm right, that I'm better, whatever that means or, or what that actually is? Or do I want to actually accomplish something? Do I actually Is there something I actually want to uh, get out of this exchange? And that could be lots of things that, you know, if it's convincing the other person of your point of view, well, you might have to take a more tactful approach like this, right? Um, is it learning something yourself? That's probably also good. Um, or is it coming to a compromise, like coming to an actual solution, um, which seems like it should be maybe the goal of most arguments, but easier said than done, right? I'm not saying by any means that I'm an expert on any of this or even good at it myself, but you know, I try to at least be open to some form of progress in, in these senses. Um, and again, this is why if we come back to the actual answers that students give for an exercise like Apocalypse Bunker, um, I point out that I think it's interesting if you look at, because we go through each candidate, right? And if you go and look back at the list, there's usually a grouping of uh, several that get a lot of choices. So usually the, the lawyer, the librarian, the singer, the first three, get almost no um, uh, picks, unfortunately. I always joke, oh, there's no law in your new society. There's no books. There's no, you know, art and music. Um, whereas the brain surgeon, the marine, and the veterinarian, the next three, usually get many picks. Um, the seven-year-old boy and girl, it varies from class to class. Like, sometimes I have classes where, you know, several students will say, like, yeah, I picked the children for various reasons. And that's an interesting one because um, there's an interesting balance there between logos and pathos as opposed to some of the other ones. But I think all of them, you can incorporate these elements of logical reasoning and emotional appeal. But anyways, I have some classes that pick them and then other classes where nobody chooses the children. <laughs> so that's the one that really varies for some reason from class to class. I don't know what that's about. Um, but anyways, uh, the former major league, uh, uh, most valuable player, uh, very rarely, um, unless, you know, students, usually the argument is like, yeah, they can use a bat to hit in zombie heads. I'm like, that's pretty good. Um, the fourth generation beet farmer gets a fair amount and the Alaskan crab fishermen, uh, very few. And so my point that I make is that I think many of us can agree that some of these choices here, if we, you know, did a poll across the whole university would score better than others. Um, but almost all of them would be chosen by somebody. And I, I think I, everybody on this list has been chosen before. And I think that's really interesting because it shows how every choice has its merits. It's just based on the spe specialization of these skills and probably the skills that students are bringing into a scenario like this. Um, they may value those skills differently than, say, if I ask the same question at, you know, uh, to another group of people who weren't college students, which, again, I think is really interesting. And it shows how there is no one right choice here. There are more obvious choices or perhaps more useful choices for many students. But almost all students agree. They're like, yeah, I, I kind of had to pick between several and I narrowed it down to the best one. And that's really the, the idea here that a lot of times argumentation isn't so, you know, black and white in terms of like there's a, a, a right answer and, and, and a wrong answer or a good answer and a bad answer. It's like, no, there are um, 
options. And there, within those options, there are degrees to which some may make more sense than others based on the situation. This, again, of course, eventually leads to their research papers, which similarly gets much more complicated. It's like you can't always look at an issue and say, yes, it's this or that. It's like that's the answer. Um, the answer, if you want to call it that, might be much more complicated and nuanced. And then students say, wait a minute, this sounds like work. And I'm like, well, yeah, of course it's work. <laughs> you know, that's that's the hard part, but that's the useful part of actually getting somewhere and, and actually making progress and succeeding at, you know, ideally uh, learning something, I would say, even before you convince somebody else of some viewpoint, right? So all easier said than done, but I think, you know, as we've said, super useful for all of these reasons. Um, so I don't know what you guys think, what your choices would be. I'd be very, very curious to know because I know a lot of students get very passionate about their zombie apocalypse bunker choices. Um, so I'll link it um, in the description, uh, the the uh, assignment here. Um so you can access this if I don't know where you're listening because this podcast plays pretty much everywhere now. But if you go to our main site, that's professorlabs.podbean.com, you can just click on it there. And if you do want to share your answer and your reasons, uh, you can tweet at us. Uh, our handle is at Joe T Labs. I'll add that in the description below. And uh, yeah, let me know what you think. I'm, I'm very curious, especially teachers, what they think of this assignment. I know other college professors have, I've told them about this assignment and they've used actually used it in their classes. They really like it. They say students have a lot of fun too. So that's really cool to hear and to see. Um, so if you are an instructor, I would love to know what you think. Uh, but if you're just any listener, I would love to actually know other than uh, just instructors and students, like what you know, other people might think would be a good choice and, and why they would think that. And again, think about too, like it, it, really the trick here is it's not so much what you think is the best choice. It's actually which friend you choose to be in the bunker with you. Like I was saying earlier, because one friend of mine who I would have in the bunker, I might make a totally different choice if that's a different person in the bunker with me already. And again, that's sort of the idea that there are certain factors that come into play that might change our perspective or change our assessment of what is, again, the right or wrong answer about an argument or a topic or, or a subject of different sorts. So think about that uh, as you look at this. And I, I think you'll be really interested to see why you might think what you think. And again, how that leads to how you think, hopefully, ideally, about other types of, of arguments and persuasion. So uh, I hope some of that makes sense. I don't know if it does. I always tell my students that. Does that make any sense? Usually they nod because they want a good grade, but I like to think I'm getting somewhat better at explaining all of this, but that's up to their uh, course evaluations, <laughs> which I'll worry about at the end of the semester. So uh, again, thanks so much for listening. Uh, really hope you enjoy. Please sh uh, share this with any anyone else who you think might uh, find this useful. And I think, again, this is super useful uh, for, for pretty much anybody. Um, I actually wish I could teach this to more people cause I think they get a lot out of it. So, um, yeah, please share this, uh, like share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Um, again, uh, you can access this assignment. Uh, it's not assignment, it's an exercise at, uh, our main site, professorlabs.podbean.com. Tweet us your answers at Joe T labs, and, uh, we'll have some more, uh, fun assignments coming up soon. So, 
all I'll say is that until then, watch out for the zombies. And uh, as always, of course, keep learning. Thanks again. See you guys next time. Bye-bye.